Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so that you can too. Oh, that was a That's subtle. Right. That's that was right. a nice shift in. It wasn't right. Yeah. So you that you again. can too. I'm not reading so that you can. We're reading if you want to also. If So we can connect. Yeah. And you don't have to read. Right. But we would love it if you did. Yes. And we're happy if you just want to enjoy the content yes. as well. Exactly. Just really, the, you listen. cannot go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we're happy. There's no such thing as failure. You really. know what? Gosh, I'm glad you're here. That's the whole thing. Like, I'm just glad you're listening. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Good to see or hear, listen to you. Talk to you. I Talk, guess. Yes. <laughs> Talk at you. In a way. In a way. It's consensual. Um, anyway. Anyway. We are here. I feel like we're both a little giddy because <laughs> we're about to dive into a neuroscience article. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for naming that. That yeah. is actually what I'm feeling. It's yeah. just like. I just, there's the words large-scale brain systems from Rutledge on my screen. There's a recipe for a I'm good, in? a good article. I'm in. Um, we are mid-neuroscience subsection of the larger season we're in. I had an episode last week where we talked about neuroscience, why it matters, mm-hmm. and why we don't understand it. Which I loved that <laughs> loved episode. That. So loved good. that. Yes. So fun. So today we are getting into the uh, four-part series that we mentioned uh, on an editorial uh, kind of series from Leonard Koziel and uh, colleagues. At all. At all. And colleagues, Lauren Barker, Arthur Joyce, and Skip Hrin. And they are talking about brain system conceptualization. They do it over four articles, and we're going to get into the number one article today called Structure and Function of Large-Scale Brain Systems. Mm. Super excited about yeah. that. But I am curious, before we jump into it, talk about SIP. Yeah, let's talk about... Do we do that here? Yeah. Some ways that people can can dive into more of what we're talking about, exploring, yes. digesting yes. Uh, as uh, beyond... Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we are super passionate about is our case conceptualization model, which for therapists and healers, that is uh, a model that is helping you organize what the heck is going on in therapy. Um, a lot of us know, you know, when things go right, but we also miss it a lot of the time. Yeah, We also have a pretty keen awareness of when things go wrong, but don't always know how to make sense of that. Yeah. So somatic integration and processing this training and case conceptualization model is really oriented towards supporting therapists and understanding why therapy works when it does and why it's not and how that might be an adaptive experience yeah not a maladaptive one yeah everything you've heard on this podcast is in some way or another baked into that training Mm -hmm. um that is again part of what case conceptualization is it's a growing uh, idea between you and a client, but it's also a skill that's always growing. And so our perspective on that training in particular um, is that it's never finished. 
Mm. Uh, we're always updating it. We're always changing things in the way we're teaching it yep. uh, to accommodate the changes in who comes to take the training and the way the field is is talking and uh, who is talking in the field and how that fits in with what's already been said historically. Yep. Um, so if you're interested at all to learn more, um, there's lots of uh, continuing education credits, both from National Board of Certified Counselors as well as IMDRIA advanced credit for both of our trainings there. You can head to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com, click on the four therapists tab under continuing education, and you're going to find that and more. Lots of other opportunities. The trainings there as well as our SIP and clinical and advanced application cohort consultation program. Yeah, which we... Both lead groups separately, but we're also starting one in October together. that is both of us together in a consultation group. Yes. And so excited. I cannot wait yeah. for that. Yeah. If you're very, if you're interested, you don't have to be very interested. If you're interested, <laughs> you I'm interested. very excited. Yes. Well, I like uh, it. Yes. Um, motivation has something to do with that, which we're going to talk about We're going to talk about in the article. intrinsic motivator, motivating systems. Classic you know. limbic system. Classic. I tell you. Yeah. Um, LOL. Yeah, so go again, connectbeyondhealing.com, for therapist tab. You'll find a link to those consultation groups, somatic integration and processing, SIP, and clinical application. And then the one that's Bridger and I is advanced clinical application. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then please, there's lots of other things. Explore the website. Yeah, there's EMDR Retreats, resources like EMDR, Out the Wazoo. Yeah. There's media sources on there, links to the YouTube page. YouTube page, like, right. subscribe. Like, and subscribe, really important. Very, actually Seriously. very important. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Make sure the tone of voice matches the seriousness of that. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, please like and subscribe. All right. Anyway. <laughs> so let's, we're going to jump in. I do want to connect the listeners a little bit in the context of I'm in. why this article felt so appealing to us. Yeah. Was that it? It was the marriage of the conversation that emerged when we did the adaptive or triune brain article. There was this subsection of that discussion that we had that was oriented towards modularity of the brain, so different modules of the brain, and you know, lesion studies and a common example is like, oh yeah, okay, so the amygdala is a fear center, the hippocampus mm-hmm. is a memory center. So there's like that whole world of neuroscience, which was saying this one part was doing this one function. But then in the adaptive brain article, they were saying there's no such thing as these modular circuits. Right. They were oriented towards systems. Yeah. And so there's this balance in neuroscience between these structures of the brain mm-hmm. and then how these structures become adaptively functional in certain ways. And this article by Koziel, this uh, and the four-part series, is a beautiful marriage of how large-scale brain systems, the structures of the brain, then get shaped through experience and reciprocally mm-hmm. conditioned to be specialized in certain ways. One of the things that they talk about in a later article is how these large-scale brain systems are organized in small worlds. So you have this big system of the brain but it has like little tiny subsystems that are all mm. communicating within and between each other that take a big world and make it very small. Yeah. Um, and I just love that that is kind of, yeah, we're I, finding the balance point there, even with this article. Yeah. I, I think I want to even zoom out to really contextualize that. And if you start talking about the brain, you're talking about something very complex, obviously. Mm. 
<laughs> I think that's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but what that means it is so interesting depending on who you talk to. Because even if you were to say, how many, how many brain parts are there? How many brain structures are there? How many brain systems mm. are there? How many brain networks are there? Those are all very highly debated questions. Mm -hmm. And it depends on who you're talking to of what meaning or value they would even find in that. Yeah. So if you were to ask something like, what causes anxiety in the brain? A question like that, I think a super entry level basic question that anybody could have of like, man, where does this anxiety come from? Mm. There's not a simple answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And even by saying, oh, it's actually in the amygdala. No, mm. but why not? And how do you then start to explain why the answer is uh, not really? Mm. And even in, in, as you said it, like the, the, okay, the amygdala is a fear center. Mm -hmm. Well, and the article that we're getting ready to get into highlights this point that could it be that the amygdala is actually just the super highway of converging network communication mm. that actually then when we notice a damage or a lesion study or something that's looking at effects to the amygdala, we're actually just seeing a communication breakdown mm. between systems in the brain. And yeah. to label that as the source of fear is not accurate. Mm. It is the path that all things cross on, perhaps, but yeah. it is not itself the center. Yeah. But over time, we've had to learn that mistake that to identify a lesioned uh, disconnect or some way of, uh, you know, interrupting or inhibiting function isn't to ascribe the function of the entire system. It's just mm. to say, well, this is what it looks like when this isn't working properly. Not to say, this is what that thing does. Yeah. But that's, again, we've talked about that in different episodes, that lesion studies or, or studies that look at damage uh, to localized areas in the brain don't actually show us what those centers that have been damaged do. They show what's not happening in the brain as a whole now that that yeah. part is damaged. What changes in the experience and expression of the whole organism as With, a result of a loss? As a result, which does it, it doesn't say anything about what that thing did in itself. Yeah. It shows what's happening now that it's not a part of the mix. Hmm. Yeah. Again, super important. Yeah. Um, it's like taking the salt out of a soup. Right. Like you're, you have a different soup, but it's, it's not you're not like tasting just a salt soup if the salt is in there. Right. It's adding to the rest of the flavors yes, that are in the soup. Yes, it's changing the balance of the entire ecosystem that's in that soup. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. I, my brain was going to like the bio biology 101 from like an atom to an organism chart and like the mm -hmm. idea that an atom becomes a molecule that becomes a cell that mm -hmm. becomes a tissue and all the way down until like you have systems and organs and organisms and what what I what we're wrestling with is okay at certain levels of perception things get really tricky yeah so at the high level maybe functionally I could use something and we talked about this in the triune brain article but like I could use basic very conceptual understandings of the brain mm. I can talk about fear in the amygdala if that feels like appropriate for the levels of perception we're dialoguing at. But also like if I just overemphasize that the amygdala is only related to fear, then I'm going to totally miss the nuances and say, well, there might be more to this system 
happening. Yeah. That, that that's an emergent experience and the, the amygdala is not working in isolation, mm-hmm. but it's working in tandem with many other brain systems. Mm-hmm. So then that to me brings us to this article and their kind of desire was to um, shift away from a lesion yeah. oriented model. Um, it can't be applied as it was initially conceptualized of just finding yeah. these specific brain regions. Yeah. And they wanted to expand it to say, let's look at these, the major key systems that play into large scale systems Mm -hmm. that play into the dance of how we come to perceive and express energy and information. This, yeah, I love that setup. And, and I think there's intuitive sense to be made of why there are limitations with lesion based uh, Mm -hmm. understandings. Like if you've ever seen a stroke victim overcome some Mm. of the functional impairments that seem to follow the stroke, you see then that the brain is not limited necessarily by the damage it experiences, Mm. but of what network or system-based connectivity can still emerge even with the damage being where it is. Mm -hmm. So the fourth sentence in had me. It said there's no single localizable brain area for the meaning of any event or fact and there is no isolated brain region specialized for any particular activity. Hmm. Done deal. Yeah. Loved that. Yes. To start the whole conversation that way. And I love the stroke victim who lost their speech initially and is able to overcome it uh, and get their speech back as an example. Hmm. Because in that, you see the brain's adaptive nature not based on single uh, part or uh, module or node, but actually in a systemic adaptive nature, Hmm. wherein I can actually work around the damage to Hmm. regain the function necessary for survival if the damage is uh, at a certain degree uh, or leaving other areas untouched. Mm -hmm. I can actually work around it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that they make a point of saying that, uh, you know, at one point we thought of the brain in probably what we experienced in our world with the evolution of computers and programming. Mm-hmm. And we understood the brain as a serial processing yes. experience. So yeah. A goes to B, B goes to C, you, you uh, experience, then you, what, how do they say it? You, uh, uh, oh yeah, we perceive, think, and respond. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's always in that order. And what they want to shift in these articles is to say it's, we're no longer in an understanding, we can't be in an understanding of serial order of the brain. Mm-hmm. We have to shift to this reciprocal interchange of quick loops that these systems are having between each other yeah. and within yeah. to then present, you know, sometimes we're responding while we're also experiencing, perceiving, and thinking in many different ways. Yeah, one of the ways that... Um I've had this evolution described to me as we used to think in two dimensions, mm. which is not invalid when looking at a three-dimensional perspective. It's just not complete. Mm-hmm. So we used to think in two dimensions, a flat landscape or, or horizontal On, conceptualization. Off. Right. Yeah. But it's also true that there is a vertical plane mm-hmm. uh, adding depth to the space. Yeah. So the the horizontal is still occurring as is the vertical. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you'll start to hear lateralized uh, vertically and horizontally uh, discussed neuroscience because we're seeing that these systems seem to have a way of functioning that is 
at the same, this is interesting tension, at the same time linear and circular. Mm. It is through the perception, uh, sorry, what are the, the way it said that? Uh, uh, perception, thinking. Perceive, think, respond. respond. Yeah. Yes, it is through that, but at the same time, it could be a circular fashion as well. You yeah. are perceiving as you are thinking, as you are responding. Yeah. All of that's concentrically happening rather than just linearly. Yeah. Some of the things that we cite in our trainings is the idea that there are some subcortical loops of information that are hitting these very autonomic ways of processing in mm -hmm. our brain 50 times before we're getting into these higher order mental functions. Yeah. So we are flashing like... um. David Pruder, Pruder? Um, psychotherapy, psychiatry and psychotherapy yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. He has a whole series that's on micro expressions and the neuroscience behind sometimes you are responding subconsciously or unconsciously to stimuli you're perceiving before you're even quote unquote thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and then you go into an inhibitory function of your response because it's yeah. inappropriate for the moment. And Reactive formation, you yeah. gotta see what kind of mm -hmm. feedback that thing got. Yeah. yeah. And there was like another podcast I was listening to where someone cited research of your autonomic nervous system is scanning your whole central nervous, your whole body for cues and signs of uh, felt or sensed threat yeah. four times a second. So like even in, awareness. Yeah, even in that, if we're talking about serial or processing, then we have to talk about it in like the nanosecond way. Yeah. To even we give don't it <laughs> yeah. have an ability to actually experience mm -hmm. consciously. Yeah. You know, it's moving too fast. Yeah. So then it's easier to talk in this looping fashion. Yeah. Reciprocal yeah. reciprocally conditioned. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They they mentioned kind of in their opening um section the two main goals of this series of articles mm. is uh, first that cognition and behavior should be understood within the context of large-scale brain systems. These functional brain networks have a profound impact upon the way we understand constructs, constructs such as attention, executive functioning, learning, and memory, and represent the infrastructure of cognition. It's shifting that it's not these small modular parts of the brain, but it's these large systems that are that are housing different subsystems within them, something like an amygdala, hippocampus, periaqueductal gray, all of those, like you can name any sort of subsystem you want, but that they're working within these large scale brain systems. And then secondly, that it is a biological reality that the brain evolved to meet and serve the needs of interactive behavior. Mm -hmm. This is where they're moving beyond serial order processing to a more, um, these systems are working within and between each other mm -hmm. to at every moment respond and receive, respond, receive, and be influenced by this interaction effect, this almost feedback experience, mm -hmm. instead of just being a perceive, uh, perceive, think, respond. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. It's much more nuanced than that. Yeah. And I, I was thinking this morning, driving in of just different ways of um, conceptualizing this through analogy. You know, if you're a single business owner, um, you know, you are the top of the organization, et cetera. Like the, you, you're the CEO, you started this thing. For somebody to talk to you about your organization as if you do it all mm. is both true and not true at the same time. Mm. It's not true 
in the way that, well, likely you have a lot of other people uh, that are doing certain facets of your organization and perhaps delivering services themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that they couldn't do that in that way at that time with that person without you there. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at the way the brain actually functions, it is itself a whole made Mm -hmm. up of parts that have to work together and communicate to meet the demands both internally and externally, just as an organization would function. I was looping on the social neuron theory, mm-hmm. driving in of like, it's interesting that we develop organizations in the same way yes. that yeah. our brain organizes itself. Well, they use that metaphor as yeah. like, you, you can see it out in the world. Um, in the next article, Cozio will talk about how if he wanted to, I think it was make a film. If he wanted to make a film, he would he would know nothing about making a film. But he does have an idea. Mm-hmm. So then he has to work on his idea within himself. Yeah. But then reach out to a cameraman. Yes. And the cameraman knows how to make certain shots happen, but he does know audio. Who does? And the audio person does yep. know marketing. And so we construct our physical world the same way same our way. internal world works. When it works, works really well, it mirrors very beautifully or parallels the process yeah. of an integrated mind. Mm-hmm. Linked and differentiated when those parts can function in themselves as they were designed. When the cameraman can do exactly what the cameraman or person, sorry, not using trying to use a gendered pronoun, yeah, there, yeah. but camera person um, does what they're supposed to do and the audio is able to do what they're supposed to do and the you know director can do what they're supposed to do. All of that comes together to make the film that can mm-hmm. then be marketed and displayed, et cetera. Yeah. But if one person were to try and say, I'm gonna do it myself, there's gonna be some struggle, a lot mm-hmm. of challenge, a lot of toll. Not mm-hmm. to say that it maybe couldn't work, yeah. but without the integration, it's going to be very, very filled with tension yeah. and metabolic energy. Yes, I love, and I, I think we could spend so much time on this, but just this is already why neuroscience feels like it makes so much sense <laughs> yes. in the room is because I'm not seeking to just dive into one part only. Mm. What I'm seeking is an integration of a system. And some of these articles, like, I mean, I freaking reference Pongsep mm-hmm. probably twice daily, maybe, yeah. <laughs> or these seven brain systems, or yeah. um, someone like, um, uh, I mean, in any sort of ego state mm-hmm. writer. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're talking about the core principle that Dan Siegel says is like, it really doesn't matter, like, what what is functional, dysfunctional. What matters is, is the brain integrated? Yes. Are your brain, and he doesn't even say brain, he says mind, which includes your body and your relational body. Yeah. Uh, are you integrated? So are, if we're jumping into the emotion of anger, we don't just want to leave anger alone. We yeah. want to jump into anger and then invite anger as a natural emotion, emotional process mm-hmm. into the realm of the rest of the client. Yes. Which, bam, integration. And we know that through neuroscientific understanding of your brain is a complex system seeking to take large systems so complex system this is interesting because i was just in a conversation with somebody about this and those are not adjectives Mm. in neuroscience complex is not an adjective Mm. a complex system as a whole is a type of system it it is a noun in itself Mm. It's not an adjective. So when we're talking about complex system, we're not just using words to describe the nature of the system. Oh, complex means there's a lot of connections. That's what the system is. No, no, it's a type. 
this comes from metaphysics like it's a type of system yeah a complex system is one of concentricity mm -hmm. being that its balance is actually predicated on the interaction of the subsystems mm -hmm. this is a type of system like i can't make that clear enough yes it's not an adjective it's a noun yeah it, it is a thing in itself so if we're talking about just in the way dan siegel does that the mind is an emergent complex system that is a very important series of words mm -hmm. not wasted adjectives or prose like these are yes. important noun based <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. i just wanted to clarify that because i feel like people just naturally because in english it's the same word complex can be used as an adjective yeah it can be used as a noun in another way as well and an adverb mm -hmm. but when we say complex systems we're talking about a type of system that behaves in a certain way yeah, yeah. it is a complex system it's not like a complex system yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 it's not i mean it is just quote unquote complex but it it means more. You can say a complex, complex system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A very complex You could say that. System. Like that's yeah. not improper mm -hmm. parts of speech mm -hmm. in the way that neuroscience uses the phrase complex systems. Yeah. It's a complex, complex system. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what all of that is really aiming at is looking at the the how health comes from the essentially I mean, this is just so much of what we teach. Like all the time. That health is safety and relationship, yeah. safety and connection. So where my mind and body both agree that I'm safe in connection. That's yes. like the true definition as yeah. we see it at beyond of like what it means for us to find healing yeah. and integration. Not just I should feel safe or there's no threat in the room and I should believe that, but my internal and my external agree. Yeah. And that that's important because where you said mind or brain and body, you could say my default functional network and yeah. my dorsal attention network yeah. both agree yeah. that I am safe in connection. Yeah, like, even just the ventral and the dorsal. Yes. My ventral attention. Yes. <laughs> I like the, the van and the dan. <laughs> the van, my van and my dan, <laughs> they agree <laughs> that I am safe in connection. Yeah, it all yeah. looks pretty good. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> my passive attention and my active attention both agree that I'm safe, safe in connection, connection, which that's important. That's rad. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That your brain, you, and I mean, we did an article on this and I feel like we got super jacked and it was with Melissa of the article where higher order brain functions are dependent upon lower brain processes. And like, that's what we're saying over and over again. It's yeah. like you, the way your brain is organized can is mirrored by how you experience the world yeah it is showing us oh that's how our brain works yeah. we are we are projecting that everywhere yes and also our dysfunction if you look at the world yes um, is disintegration mm -hmm. interpsychically yeah 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 i i do want so to point out the second point yeah uh well the either. second point was biological reality yeah has uh, evolved to meet the meet and serve the needs of interactive yes. behavior. Yeah, just to name yeah. the two points that this is all. Yeah. Yep. So, sorry. Well, I was going to move in because the next section goes to what are these large-scale brain systems? One interesting dynamic that I wanted to just spend a little bit of time on is a dynamic that is um, hard to talk about of the density of the brain mm. the brain is not hierarchically organized alone there is the three-dimensional quality so it's bottom up but also inside to outside mm -hmm. 
and that our modern fMRI scanning techniques are limited in their depth the dimensionality of, yeah the dimensionality yeah when you see a like on like Gray's Anatomy or house MD or something like <laughs> yes. that and you see like a brain scan yeah. you're seeing what humans are using to understand parts of function and activation it's not what the actual brain looks like and how it mm -hmm. how it transmits or yeah. uh, connects between systems yeah yeah i love and this there's, point there's a threshold limit you don't see activation patterns as deeply in the brain right and so then what i and the reason i feel like that's important and, and they even noted at one point is that these large-scale brain systems they're using research that is organizing this information based on cort cortex specific systems mm. what's interesting is they talk about limbic systems and its connection to these cortical regions and they also reference like um, someone like Ledo's work or De La, F De La Fuente mm -hmm. um, who are kind of coming into a lot of these cortical centric models of the brain and saying you know these cortical zones of processing are dependent upon subcortical networks which affective neuroscience is a blossoming field of that that we've mm. talked about and some other like behavioral um, and relational sciences are also on this wavelength but I just wanted to point that out because these large-scale brain systems are cortex specific they're oriented in the cortex but they they also have some nuance around they're acknowledging that the the cortex and these cortical zones are dependent on subcortical processes mm. and that there is an interweave it's not a there's no hard line there's no rigid break between the subcortical and cortical zones it's a emergent fluidity mm -hmm. um, between those two i was just thinking there there was a study that was published um using the arc of understanding have you seen this mm. um it's a i just thought of this um it's the image i'm sure you've seen it somewhere um uh it's the image that's like multicolored. Um, it's of the brain, mm -hmm. and it was on magazine uh, covers not too long ago. Um, but it looks—I mean, I'm showing you in what it looks. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Where you can take a tour of the brain, mm -hmm. so to speak. But this is just some advances that we're we're gaining uh, access to, uh, just in our ability to actually imagine and visualize what organic uh, energy formation looks like in the brain, and letting it build its own model. Yeah. inside a computer system instead of setting a template for what that activation can fill and then measuring it based on mm -hmm. our preset parameters for the size and uh, location of brain structure. So actually letting the brain's energetic resonance and metabolic expenditure show us the, mm. the, the boundaries of each system. Yeah. As opposed to saying, here's where I think it is, where does that energy go, mm. filling out the image on the screen. Yeah, yeah. I. I, I mentioned that, um, and I'm, I'm glad that we're developing these new technologies because it does feel when we're teaching brain organization concepts to therapists to mm -hmm. help conceptualize, it, it does kind of sometimes feel very rigid when we talk about the triune brain and hierarch yeah. hierarchical organization that it's, it's like literal, just like, 
cuts chunk, in the brain. Chunk, chunk, yeah, yeah. And bottom is basic, top is very complex. complex yeah. And it's more inside to outside, but even the inside isn't like at the bottom. It's kind of tucked in, the in to of. the middle yeah. zone. Yeah. Um, so if you're third. reading, yeah, if you're reading along with us, figure one shows uh, essentially like a visual topographical map of the brain with these different systems. Um, and when they show the spliced view, there's this black piece that's in this zone of subcortical networks and they just color it black because it's like, well, we don't really know. We don't quite have the, the research in the wherewithal to say. It's a reliable interpretation yeah. uh, based on current mm -hmm. technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the section of large scale brain systems, really how the article is oriented and maybe how we can go through it is they list these yeah. seven uh, large scale brain systems, give just kind of a basic qualitative understanding of them. Um, and then in the following sections or pieces, articles, they really dive into how does this make sense in clinical and experiential ways. Love um, it. And then uh, how is it adapting our understanding of the brain? Yeah. Um, One of the pieces, just to kind of jump into it, that mm -hmm. I really appreciated was the way it framed the entire uh, sort of purpose of talking about large-scale brain systems is to show that the brain is never inactive. Mm. Um, you know, this is, a, I think, a hyperbole that our field as therapists falls into, like when your brain goes offline or something like that 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 would mean you're dead. <laughs> um, there's no way functionally nor biologically for your brain to go offline. Yeah. What that language is communicating is that something is happening that isn't in line with integrated function. This is something that I feel like we have maybe like a deep felt sense for, mm. but like that is not some like concept that doesn't mean anything. Like. That concept means that if someone is with you and alive, yeah. there is something to be discovered. Yes. At every moment. So like even moments you can't discern. Yeah. Like it is a trick of the mind that we tell ourselves as an adaptive strategy to yeah. say, I'm not thinking anything. I'm, I'm not feeling off. anything. Like, yeah. We don't have anything to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's like those aren't real. Yeah. You your brain is never like off. It's a level of dissociative uh, experience in that yeah. moment. So then like for a therapist thinking, like uh, sometimes I'll walk into a session and there's like that slight moment of panic where I've looked through our notes and I'm like thinking like, what are we gonna talk about Oh my about God, today? what are we gonna talk about today? I don't know. And then like, I feel like there's this ritual that has just emerged from my understanding of some of these concepts of like, it's okay. They will show up. And if they show up, there's something to talk about. Yeah. There always is. And even if it's, why did you show up when you don't think you need to show up? Yeah. That's still like a very Super important, very uh, yeah. therapeutic discussion. What do you need this space for? Like mm. that, just the question of like, why are you here? Mm. Like what, what's yeah. going on right now? Yeah. What is your brain processing? Yeah. Like, cause it always is. What are you noticing? It's never anything. Not. Yeah. And if. And if there's this felt sense of it's not, then that's like a wonderful like path of exploration. Yeah. Of, I'm, I wonder what your system is doing when it communicates to us. I have no active activity. Yeah. When I know it does. Yeah. 
And that's not like, like that. a gotcha moment. That's like a genuine curious well, it's hard to understand when you've become so aware of the absence mm. that your brain itself has learned to create yeah um Ooh, that's so that's brilliant that i mean learn to create yeah. the absence mm. like that that is really hard to understand <laughs> yeah i feel like as therapists we should sit with that for mm -hmm. we should meditate on that for a, a long time yeah to, to notice some of the very real cultural strategies around, I don't know, nothing's, nothing's going nothing's on. Nothing's coming up. Yeah, nothing's coming up. I'm not having yeah. anything. How do you feel about that? Because I'm thinking, call back to Crittenden right there in the mug. Heck yeah. Um, like the idea of attachment and the dismissive nature of letting that be your response to external cues for internal activation. Mm -hmm. How are you? Good yeah what what come on like what what's going on yeah. mm -hmm. i don't really know yeah like what do you feel as a person yourself yeah like both of us i think this is an interesting conversation for us in the room <laughs> <laughs> yeah for two dismissives, <laughs> for two dismissives. Who, which maybe that's why i'm so oriented towards yeah, you're it jacked is, on it because you're like hey there's I've stuff been there in in the experience of wasting i don't want to say wasting but i've spent so much money sitting in another therapist's office saying i'm not i have nothing <laughs> yeah. what when i really did i just my and here we go right into the article my default mode network said if i'm going to maintain any sort of homeostasis here it's going to have to start from the foundation of like i don't go first yeah like, i'm going to base my like experience and what feels safe off of what what do you want me to talk about that's exactly so to me right there of when i'm thinking about my own personal therapy experience i feel like i'm a terrible client because i'm not actually giving you my raw processing i'm trying to answer your question it's different and figure out your question exactly like really <laughs> like anticipate want? it yeah. in a way uh and i don't even know that i'm doing it mm -hmm. but that's how i go through life mm -hmm. i have my secret world that's behind this forehead and then out in the world it's like well i meet the demands of my environment mm -hmm. I, I'm, I don't i don't invade the space mm -hmm. the space invades me yeah and that's my world yeah which i i love i mean we could flip this both ways so the dismissive experience and the preoccupied experience yeah. and i think both of those could be grounded in what they go in to talk about the first um, large-scale brain system which is the default, default mode, mode network, network yeah. the dmn um, and this default mode network is a very interesting like it's not a it has a baseline activity but it pulls a lot of complex systems into its functioning yeah. to create a very like general mm -hmm. system of firing yeah um both in higher cortical and subcortical regions. Yeah. Which that's interesting. Yes. Just because if you're thinking about the resting state of the brain, which the, or the default uh, kind of mode, you're seeing a high potential waiting. Mm. You know, when we talk about affective circuits and the seeking circuit, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this ever per, ever present potential for activation in response to the environment, which could be an internal cue 
or an external cue, mm. but it is just a ready potential mm -hmm. for activation firing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and they even go, they, they talk about the rumble. If you oh, the, yeah. The loud motors and engines. Yeah. Um, we won't go on the polybagel theory rant that I Not usually go time. on to mitigate my anger, but yeah. um, <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners have already heard that before, so they're tired of it. Um, <laughs> no but one's they... tired of your anger, buddy. Don't put that <laughs> oh, away. Oh, thank you. Don't put that away. Yeah, maybe this story that I tell to mitigate the anger. Yeah, That's maybe I'm just maybe I'm it. just projecting. Anyway, um, <laughs> they talk about this default mode network because you know it it. It pulls in different, um, um, what, what are the two zones? Um, oh, shoot. I lost my... Are you uh, talking about the two hubs? Uh, anterior medial, yeah, medial prefrontal just... cortex and the medial temporal lobe subsystem to bring in a sort of intrinsic and in extrinsic yep. focus of attention to give this sort of baseline for all perceptive information. Yeah. Just saying, I'm ready. Yeah. And I, what you were saying of like this action potential of yeah. like your default mode network is always there to just give you a baseline to launch from. Yeah. And that is learned and organized and subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> like that's... When, yeah. When I was thinking about, you know, this subsystem or this large scale brain system in, in general, um, I was thinking of Pongsep talks about this interesting shift in our uh, developmental neurobiology around when we stop prioritizing learning and emphasize memory. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it it feels very connected to this burgeoning development of a default mode network where this default network then provides a sort of homeostatic baseline understanding of attention and focus on internal and external cues mm. so that it doesn't always have to provide all of the energy for integrating all the information that is going on. Like when you're a child and you have to sleep a lot because you're <laughs> taking in so much and learning yeah. so much. Um, our brain kind of reorganizes. Then this is like that the dance of quote unquote consciousness and expanding consciousness is utilizing the default mode network, but then what, what they go on to talk about with the different attentive networks is like activating controlled attention yeah. and oriented towards intended learning and experience. Um, but yeah. that's such a fascinating, um, like the white noise of our brain is mm -hmm. our lived memory of homeostatic function. Absolutely. We call it, yeah, in, in one of our trainings, we call it the homeostatic range. Like that's really mm -hmm. what it is, is knowing how much of me needs to be involved in what I'm doing right now. At any given moment. At any given moment. And like the adaptability. Nanosecond to nanosecond. Yeah. yeah. Based on memory and present interpretation of reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fascinating. Yeah. And I love that this then goes into talking about visual networks. So if you're, if we just go with that for a second as the, if we're starting with the most baseline uh, system activation in the brain, what then starts to, uh, pull at that baseline and influence it, influence it, become recruited by it. Mm -hmm. Like how does it start to move in orientation? Because I, I have this visualization that I hope one day we can turn into an animation of some kind, but that as these in human evolutionary development, the right uh, combination of parts and maturation give way to 
the engine turning on, the computer system firing mm. up. And mm-hmm. that to me is in the default mode network actually like, like it's mm. actually alive now. Yeah. And so once it's alive, it is thinking on its own, it's feeling on its own, it's making awareness on its mm. own. Like we have the illusion of consciousness, mm. but it's really the default mode network giving information as it deems necessary based on lived experience. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And like, yeah. Like your attention is not because of your will. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. That's, that's the, that's a thing that I, I do work with clients on that a lot of like, you think, you know, but that's because you want to, Hmm. it's not because you do or don't, It, it just, it's not, you can't know all of these things. And when you look at a memory in the past, you can see it so clearly, like, why did you make, why did you make the meaning you did of that memory? Mm. I don't know. That's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just how I made sense of it. Yeah. If you really start to parse out then where, and I love that they bring this in, like they say, for example, aside from the dementias, nearly all disorders have a developmental origin mm. in childhood or adolescence because of the disturbance to this default mode network. Mm-hmm. That's what then in looking at a a temporal perspective of that reality, you're going to see things that look like our our disorders Mm. um, because they're long-term hyper hypoactivations. That's what happens. So you make meaning of those memories that justify the, or really explain Mm. the effect it had on your default mode network functioning and thus the adaptation and development that came after it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the idea of thinking eventually you developed this this baseline way of navigating the world. And then, it, and this is so true to, like I think of Jung's idea of the two halves of life, and there's other spiritual traditions that have different ways of talking about it as well, but you you go down one path and at some point you realize there's other paths. I keep walking this path and just be rigidly towards this path, or I could jump and find these other paths. And I think it's interesting the way they've uh, organized this article is to start with the default mode network and then to look at all of the other systems that allow us to quote unquote, jump from the path Mm, mm. and find other ways of being in the world. Yeah. So we've created this through development, this default mode network. But then like the next one, the visual network. Yeah. The visual network allows us then to orient and sustain attention or su- suppress attention to extraneous and irrelevant irre- stimuli. Yes. And to orient to yes. novel stimuli. So, okay, the dorsal, oh, sorry, the uh, default mode network fires up. And as is always firing, is always firing up. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. But in that developmental process, it fires up. Now we have all this potential, Mm. um, then meeting that potential, the visual network offers an incredible ability to perceive far beyond the physical limitations Mm. of actual inhabited space. Mm. So I can see so much farther than I actually take up space in. Mm -hmm. So I think about like around the default mode network, if we're thinking about that sonar idea Mm. that like from the ship goes this ability to interpret our environment from a large distance, I then can start to hierarchically organize or prioritize 
uh, objects and moving towards me, away from me, concerning me, not concerning me, mm -hmm. like you you were reading there, um, that an important uh, action control component of mm. the of the visual network is that it helps us prioritize and deprioritize stimuli that are far outside mm -hmm. the bounds of our physical being. I just love looking at it that way that here's your DMN and this this thing located in physical space in your brain has connections to sensory systems that far outreach the boundaries of your physical being. You can see things far beyond you. So you're already prioritizing the stimuli recognition in your environment. Yeah, yeah. And then that like recognition, which I, I don't know if we have time for this today, but I'd be so curious to do some more diving on the experience of uh, the neurobiological and phenomenological experience of dissociation and disintegration with someone who's blind. Yeah. And how the visual network this system is still its own system, yeah. but qualitatively or functionally different uh, in that way. Yeah. That just feels super like a fun rabbit trail to go. Yeah, because when they're getting in the inter integration of networks, auditory visual interactions, mm. they talk about that. Yes. Like yeah. if you were in a dark space, what would happen is a shared... Uh, movement between the ventral attention network and the dorsal attention network mm. to actually uh, fill out your awareness of the environment even without the stimuli of one system's preference. Yeah. Which Freaking is amazing. Amazing. Like insane. Yeah. Like I don't know why you're we're just creating here sensory experience that you're out not of nothing. Having. Out yes. of an absence. Yeah. That's crazy yeah. that we can orient without a primary mode of stimulation. Mm. I mean, that's wild. Yes. <laughs> and then we have we have regulatory functions based off of that. Based off of that. Intrinsically. Behavioral activations. Yes. We can even process potential act actions. Personality emerges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. yeah. Which on anyway. a broad level, like you don't see a reflection of a smile. You can still fill that out with a behavioral pattern. Yeah, I mean, like that doesn't just apply to if you can't see. That applies psychologically, emotionally, and relationally as yeah. well. Caleb, so I don't know how we're going to get through this article, man. Well, I think we can. We, we got to buzz and. I, but it's so good. Should we? We're only on the second network. Okay, maybe we should just get through the it's Dan. Three oh seven. We'll just get through the Dan. Get through the Dan. Yeah. Okay, I love that goal. Love it. That feels good. <laughs> I guess this is going to take so long. This series, <laughs> this series is going to turn into 10 episodes. Uh, it's four, four articles, Whatever. 10 episodes. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah, because when we get to the other articles, we'll This we'll is 10 pages. Crazy. The other yeah. ones are... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so it, in keeping in line with what we are talking about, because I feel like when we get into where they talk about integrating auditory and visual, that's kind of where this... You know, they go off on a little bit of a side tangent that feels super important. But to stay with where we're at, you have the default mode network that then uses vis the visual network yes. to um, kind of orient and then visual auditory as well to orient to space time yep. and either Physically. zone out of or yep. zone into stimuli that is important to know, do I have to... Uh, branch off from my default mode network or do I have enough to stay here? 
Yes. The way we do that I are love through the way these. You're talking right now. It's so <laughs> yeah. sick. The way we do that are through these two networks: the ventral attention network and the dorsal attention network. One way, and not to be overly reductionistic, but what's outside of me and what's inside of me. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Because the way, I mean, it's so crazy. I feel like we could do an episode on just each of these networks. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't say that because that really excited me. <laughs> I'm not sure how to There's handle myself. There's at least 30 references per section. <laughs> yeah, because the ventral attention network you know, this is what we're talking about when we're when we're looking at mentalization. You know, if you're if you're thinking about the temporoparietal junction, and I mean, supermarginal gyrus, frontal operculum, like all of these these structures, in- insulas, anterior yes. insula. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at theory of mind associated mm-hmm. network based understanding. So the the I'm using a lot of words that are interesting. Um, ventral <laughs> attention network. Um, perceives the experience of reality. Again, all of those, that sentence right there is shaped by time and experience and relationship. But your experience of the world then starts to identify what objects are of interest to me now Mm. in my environment, whether animate or inanimate, and which ones do I need to uh, perhaps deprioritize my attention because there's only so much and move towards or away from Mm -hmm. uh, other things of interest and i really picked up on the idea of um object affordances i don't Mm. know if you remember us talking about this some time ago but when we were putting together sip2 this was a big conversation that you and i would get into about how we learn the affordances of an object which Mm. is associated with the ventral uh, attention network which just for those affordances you can think of like what can i afford to do right or like, what can this I object to... afford to do itself yeah. or with me with or me or al- allow yeah. me to do yeah yes we're talking kind of shaping and molding right which you learn and the van is really a you know a, a learning center as we're talking about exploring our space if you've ever wondered what a baby's doing mm. walking or you know crawling around putting things in its mouth using its sensory or visual network um, opportunities or or motivations, you're seeing these object affordances be turned into memory of, okay, this is a binky. This is what this does. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a wooden block. This is what this does. You're starting to learn weight, depth, size, ability to move, ability to eat, to not eat, like all the things that you Mm do um, with the objects around you you learn these things. Same reason you can look at a, I think Melissa uses this sometimes, you can look at a surface and know what it would feel like to lick it. Mm -hmm. Like that's the same. (laughs) Those are the same ideas that your default mode network in understanding stimuli from the visual network has then the VAN to start measuring and and organizing or assorting. Mm -hmm. Which is how I'm going to manipulate me Mm -hmm. to engage the outside world. Yeah. So that attention network is is oriented towards I'm going to learn in action. And it connects, they point out that it connects very deeply to the striatum, which is a crucial, crucial area of the basal ganglia, which is fundamental in just our unconscious learning of how to be in the world um, from our, again, from our perspective of me. Then you go to the dorsal attention network, which is how how do I pay attention to stimuli that is relevant for 
how I behave to the world in space、mm. and time. Yeah, in a world that isn't just two D but three D.、Mm. When I'm when I'm going in for like a a hug or a handshake with you, my dorsal attention network is oriented towards how do I take my default my default understanding of the world. The stimuli that I'm picking up through my visual network network that is orienting towards like、Space、you're、time. a safe、mm-hmm. human that I want to engage in a in a relation relational engagement. Okay, then I have I feel in my ventral attention network a desire to organize my experience towards a hug. My dorsal attention network is going to then organize all information of. Okay, now we're gonna hug. Now、yeah. we're gonna. Here's、Come、what this、together. looks like. Actually, yeah, yeah, I love and <clears throat> not to go back to the to the VAN, but for just one second, where it talks about, you know, the VAN identifies objects that are out there in the world and has traditionally been known as the what pathway.、Mm. Freaking love the、this. what path. The what pathway. What is that thing? Yeah. What do I know about that thing? It seems to be moving towards me. What do I know about things moving towards me?、Mm-hmm. It seems to be quite fast. What does that mean? <laughs> like、yes. you're starting to make sense of the what of things、yeah. through your ventral attention network. The dorsal attention network is recognized as the where, or no, yeah, the, the where, where and the how. Yeah, the where and the how. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat>、um, so. W- what is it, and where am I in relation to it, and how should I respond? In my body to meet the what? Yeah, yeah. The, they say through the reciprocal connections with the premotor regions of the brain, which is just an amazing. Yeah. Anyway, this this system supports pragmatic, practical representations of the opportunities for action <laughs> that these objects, aka the world, affords. You can just think of like in in your experience, like when we're talking about therapy, just to give it some context here, like. That's crucially important for me to understand that when, and we didn't even talk about at one point they.、Um, this was going to be so important for me, and I'm glad that it's finally coming back. They say perception, ideas, behaviors, and all learning are retained within the same distributed brain networks within which they were initially processed. So then, to apply that to, <laughs> if I have a client who is experiencing something like grief, they have an internal experience of grief that is. Outside of their default network, they don't normally cry in front of another person.、Hmm. Well, their brain is going to engage in some sort of interconnection with itself, based on these systems, to say, "Okay, this is what I'm experiencing. Where am I, and how can I experience this?" Not based on like information just in the now,、hmm. but also lived experiential information of how have I navigated this in the past? In the past, with whom? And where, yeah, and what? How did it go? Again, yes, the appraisal component. Yeah, you yourself, an object affordance、uh, parameter. Like you're learning what it is to be you、mm-hmm. uh, through the appraisal of the other and the environment you're in. Yeah,、um, I just had this thing run through my head of like the fascination I had in in early、uh, undergrad with feral children.、Um, mm. So interesting. There were a series of documentaries that came out in the late '90s, early 2000s about feral children、um, and how different they were in taking on more primal、uh, behaviors and characteristics,、um, struggling then to learn language and all of these things. 
But I, I just was so fascinated by that because I think in that moment, I learned the power of reciprocal conditioning in relationship mm. uh, to other beings. You know, you're learning what it means to be you and how your, your brain and body are going to develop in uh, harmony or dissonance with that environment. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's just so, so fascinating to me. Yeah, I was literally just talking with a client this morning about how frustrating it is well, and the language we were using is that it's it's paradoxical. It's a dialect because the most frustrating dynamic is also what makes us beautiful. Yeah. Is that we are so smart and complex and adaptive as we are because we're not just interacting with other objects. Mm. We're act interacting with other organisms that are just as complex and just as... Um, dynamic space-time developmentally organized as we are and we're trying to and the context of this was couples therapy of like wouldn't it just be easier if you guys were objects to each other mm. it, you know you wouldn't require as much complexity and i think we'd miss this doesn't mean this is them like we'd miss beauty like there's wow. actually something to this that if we can just sit for a second with the feeling of you are just as complex as me. Yeah. Then we can start to open up to the beauty of us being two human mammalian organisms trying to make sense of this moment based yeah. on all of the moments we've lived up to yes, now. Yes, all the moments that yeah. we've lived. Yes. And that that would be that. different if I was quote unquote feral yeah. and just interacting with more basic, um, somewhat linear organization of the world through just objects. Yeah. And wherein your sense of safety is predicated on physical action primarily. Hmm. You know, that, that is a different environment rather than interpreting the nuances of, of emotional and psychological yeah. uh, motivation and behavior. Yeah. I'm so stoked for when we get into like the limbic network and when they bring it around to the somatic motor yeah what sensory motor yeah. network yeah. oh yes yes it's crazy like i just love this conversation so much um and i'm struggling to articulate why i guess like it i don't know necessarily what it does to my brain but just to have the ability to speak to the most uh you know primary or simple developmental process as it gives way to greater nuance and depth given the emergence of more opportunity mm -hmm. to both know and understand and interact or behave with yeah new stimuli yeah i mean it's well, crazy yeah i'm going to say something that I, I i'm curious if this hits why it's so exciting um but to me i feel like we've shared in so many conversations of like if you get beyond all of the social strategies of neuroscience, that it either makes you a, a smart person that's more powerful than other people, or it makes you feel terrible because you can't understand it, and yeah. you're, or that it's it's just a science, there's no art to it, or it's just like, you know, if we get past all of these kind of ugh, muddy narratives waste about, yeah, waste of time, <laughs> yes, and we can ground ourselves in like. This, of course, is not perfect because nothing is. Like yeah. myths aren't perfect. Uh, humanity, humanities aren't perfect. Story, Techniques strategy, aren't perfect. Stories, yeah, no, nothing's perfect. Yes. <laughs> but if we can sit with, we are learning tools that are utterly de-shaming. Yes. 
like to know that we have these in inborn parts of us that are like giving way to understanding of like you're not dysfunctional look at ocd i just want (laughs) to okay it's i can't i know we We have have, we don't have time five minutes but we can ocd is crazy with this understanding i was Mm. just talking to somebody yesterday about this you have a default mode network that was so shaped by its hyperactive uh energy intrinsic uh activation that it met stimuli in the environment to both further like up itself (laughs) so Mm. saying like okay my default mode network is learning that hyperactivation is going to prepare us for readiness much better than a hypoactivation. Mm-hmm. I need to be on alert, ready to go. That then then informs the affordances you're making of objects in your environment. Okay, mm-hmm. this means I need more activation. You're starting to see that these uh, things going on around you, the meaning you're making of it is that they have implications for you to take responsibility, yeah. not to be inactive towards. So again, you have to meet the demands of your environment with actual behavior externally. And if you can't do it directly, you need to do it indirectly through these compulsions and these behaviors which get rid of the tension, mm-hmm. but only for a second. Yeah. So again, then your VAN and your DAN start to communicate. Literal scan. Yeah, like here's what we're trying to do with the meaning we've made of the stimuli as mm-hmm. it presents in our environment. And it's not working. Yeah, it's not actually addressing the threat, so we continue these compulsive behaviors, but it's not—it's not doing anything to the actual threat. So we need to keep doing them mm-hmm. because it's the only thing we know to do to release the tension in the meantime, while we try to figure out ways to actually deal with the problem, yeah. which is the responsibility we're taking of whatever is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's just so clear. Yes, if this—if you're—and it—it's—it's weird to use personification in this way but it feels like it makes so much sense of like if your brain sees itself as the problem it will continue to split and therefore live in a disintegrated state therapy will not be aimed at health it will be aimed at coping with levels of disintegration and dissociation Yeah. yeah but if your brain can can learn that it is not the problem it is adapting in and it ways... it couldn't be the problem. Yeah. That's the... Yes. yes. It is adapting to the world for reasons that are adaptive that we may not be able to understand, understand. now. Yeah. But we can get to that understanding. But first, we have to help the brain see you don't have to split from yourself. Yeah. This is the overlap. Disintegration is unhealth. Yes. Integration is health. And getting there is a real challenge. I mean, that's that's where overlap the of art. shame and OCD, like, yeah, mm-hmm. it makes good sense Yeah, why you're washing your hands compulsively and checking the doors and mm-hmm. pulling your hair and doing all these things. If you believe that you're the problem and that it's your responsibility to fix it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that is a debilitating. Yeah debilitating entanglement yeah and some psychoeducation that isn't aimed at giving like knowledge Mm. but is aimed at giving a space for understanding Mm -hmm. if i'm presenting this knowledge in a way that says this isn't the answer but this is this may help us open up 
to greater understanding and feeling what it's like to be us in this moment, then neuroscience is utterly de-shaming. Yeah. In my perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. If it's not used as the objective tool of, I'm going to give you knowledge that is going to save you. That's not going to happen. Knowledge isn't the answer, but it can provide a space of opening up and greater understanding. I'm in. Heck yeah. Well, next week we will, if you're reading along with us, we paused at page 240 in the article, Integrating Networks, Auditory and Visual Interactions and Action Controls. That's where we're headed. We're going to look at the limbic system, the sensory motor system, and one other that I'm blinking on, the frontal parietal network. Ah, yes. Um, Ah, yes. The old frontal parietal. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as you can tell, Bridger and I are so excited about the series. Yeah, not um, because it's just knowledge. Like, yeah, mm. it is a tool for opening up spaces to understand. Spaces to understand, understanding being the felt experience of you and me now. Yes. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Brian. See you. See you in two weeks, I'll or I guess you. hear you. Or we'll You'll talk at you or something. in two weeks. You'll hear from us in two weeks. Like. <laughs> Thanks for joining. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Andrea-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear.